It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. Welcome to the show. What's going on? Thank you very much for listening and for joining me today. I appreciate it. Stories are very, very powerful. That's why media is, by the way. That's why media is powerful, because stories are powerful. And uh, always be wary of reporters, and I have encountered them throughout my life in my career, uh, reporters uh, who would say to me when I asked, why did you get into this line of work? Why did you want to be a reporter? And uh, some of them would say, because I wanted to tell people's stories. I wanted to be a storyteller. I liked telling stories, right? Now, to me, uh, I guess that's kind of important in the business, sure. Uh, but that should not be the, uh, the motivating factor. That should not be the reason you get into this line of work, uh, in my opinion. My opinion is that you get into the line of work because you believe in the constitutional role of the free press in order to keep the government uh, from becoming too powerful and abusing its citizens. That's the point, right? In my view, not, and I'm not requiring everybody to, uh, to adopt my view. Now, that being said, I do believe my view is superior, just because, I mean, do we hold opinions about things <laughs> that we don't believe to be true? Um, that's just my take on it. I think it's a better reason to be in the business. And I'm always wary of people who make this argument that, or answer the question, I should say, that uh, they like to tell stories. Because stories are very, very powerful things. And what you think is a story is actually, you know, someone's life. It's a policy. It has implications and effects and impacts on people you know all over the place that you may have no idea uh, you're even reaching stories are very very powerful media is because of it um, people are believing right now for example that things are worse in Florida and in Georgia than they are in New York why because of how the media has covered it because of the stories that the media tells. Uh, reporters tell these stories based on facts that they discern, and then they convey to you in the form of a story. The reality is that Florida has, uh, on its worst day of new cases, is still better than New York's cases yesterday, okay? Okay. Florida has more people than New York, and yet Florida's worst day is like 10% of New York's worst day. Yet, Governor Cuomo is treated like he's a saint. We're going to talk to Noah Rothman, the associate editor of Commentary Magazine, in a minute. First, this show is made possible by patrons like Beth and Al, Brian and Daniel, David and Dennis, Gary, James, Jan and Janet, Jocelyn, Patty, Peggy, Sarah, Tavis, Terrence and Teresa, Manuel, Kristen and Kim. I appreciate all of your support. Could not do it without you. You too can become a patron of the program, get cool stuff like the uh, uh, the bumper stickers and such, and you get access to the exclusive content. Head on over to thepetecalendarshow.com and click the link. Uh, the show is also made possible by sponsors like Mattress Man, mattressmanstores.com. 
Five-star delivery service, you've, you know about that, right? We talk about that, the white glove service that's free and local. Um, you know that they have a 120-day comfort guarantee, right? So uh, you're going to love the mattress. And if you don't love the mattress, if it's not the best mattress, then uh, they'll exchange it for you for free for a limited time, the 120-day comfort guarantee. And, uh, okay, so you're worried about COVID-19. You're worried about picking up the COVID uh, in the mattress store while you're looking for a mattress. Well, here's what they're doing. Private in-store appointments where when you go in, you'll be the only one there with you. I mean, if you bring your, you know, your spouse or your family, then it's just going to be, you know, your family unit and the, uh, the sleep consultant. They'll observe social distancing rules and uh, the card reader. Your, so if you use your credit card, if you use uh, the cash register, all of that stuff, it's all sanitized after every use and single use pillowcases provided for every visitor. So they're doing this responsibly and safely. Okay. Uh, how do you get the in-store appointment? Glad you asked. You can make an appointment by phone, video conference. Um, just go to their website, mattressmanstores.com. All of the details are at mattressmanstores.com. Or if you prefer to shop online, get an additional 20% savings. Rest well is the discount code you want to use at checkout. R-E-S-T-W-E-L-L. Rest well. Get an additional 20% savings off site-wide, all their inventory that they've got in stock, mattressmanstores.com. Experience the difference, buy local, and sleep better. Noah Rothman is the associate editor at Commentary Magazine, commentarymagazine.com. He is also a contributor on MSNBC and NBC News. He's also the author of a book titled Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. And uh, Noah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. I do appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Certainly. So you have a piece at commentarymagazine.com. Uh, it's called The Undeserving Adulation for Andrew Cuomo's Pandemic Response. And based on the coverage that I've seen about uh, New York City and Andrew Cuomo, um, he's really, it seems like he's gotten it right. Like Andrew Cuomo, as far as governors go, he's gotten it right on COVID-19 response. Is that accurate in your assessment? Uh, it's hard to say, first of all. I mean, I'm, I make the claim that we should be relatively, this is all improvisatory. So we should have at least a little bit of forbearance for uh, the various governors who are prioritizing economic reopenings over uh, continued lockdowns or vice versa and the mistakes they make along the way. That being said, um, Andrew Cuomo's response has been met with uh, extremely effusive praise and not just the average run of the million you know, rally around the flag in times of trauma sort of situation, but obsequious displays saying that, you know, that he's very presidential, some sort of voce commentary that he could be replacing Joe Biden at the top of the ticket nauseating outpourings uh, about his uh, speculating from journalists about his romantic availability you can buy merch on Esty now with featuring his face on socks or a mug captioned future mrs cuomo he's on the cover of rolling stone yada 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 the bottom line <laughs> is they're creating a cult around the guy right so you would think it would be deserving um but the conditions over which he has presided are so terrible and the adulation he has received so disconnected with those conditions that you can only assume that this is some sort of a weird contrivance to create a political narrative that is favorable, unfavorable to Donald Trump in particular, and favorable to Democrats. When you really drill down into those conditions, they are quite appalling. 
how deep i gotta ask uh how deep down the uh andrew cuomo sex status symbol path did you actually go in researching for this piece i mean i imagine there's some pretty dark corners on it that was path. the shallowest <laughs> possible dive <laughs> okay. just just skim the surface and then achieve escape velocity right <laughs> so uh is this just a sort of byproduct though of a of a new york centric media establishment for lack of a better term that uh, we've always understood I'm, I'm originally from new york and i thought the world revolved around new york city as well and then i left new york 30 years ago and i realized oh okay all the media reporting does actually revolve around new york city it wasn't uh, just my imagination so how much of it is that maybe yeah, I don't know. There might be some of it, but it it doesn't seem to be connected. There's the phenomenon that you've observed, uh, you know, generally with media coverage, which is that, you know, Georgia, Florida, and Texas uh, have opprobrium heaped around their shoulders by the by the press, the coastal press, for actions that are being taken by California and Colorado as well, with no meaningful distinction in their relative caseloads. So, I mean, there's that. Obviously, there's a narrative, and there's a desire to for the press to create the idea that these lockdowns are effective a and b popular and anything that goes against the narrative encounters some sort of resistance but as we said the governor's coverage has been excessive and again the conditions over which he has presided have not been commensurate with the kind of treatment that he's getting for example the press has been relitigating the month of february over the last couple of weeks pressing the president to explain the extent to which he was doing things that were to mitigate the effects of this pandemic that we all felt in march um, and the governor escaped that kind of uh, scrutiny if they had applied it, they would find out that he was doing it precisely what everyone else was doing, downplaying the pandemic. He talked about how this is a lot like the Zika virus and Ebola, et cetera. Quote, but let's have some connection to the reality of the situation. Catching the flu right now is a much greater risk than anything that has to do with the coronavirus, unquote. Um, that's now looked upon as a very irresponsible statement, but it was conventional wisdom at the time. Likewise, you go into March, the, he engaged in this real big battle with the president about ventilators. When the president said that he didn't think New York would require 40,000 or 30,000 ventilators, Cuomo said this was ignorant, grossly uninformed, and, and speculated that he would be responsible. The president would be responsible for quite a significant death count. It turns out the president was right. And if he had caved to that kind of pressure to move all the federal stockpiles of ventilators into New York, then it would have put the rest of the country in a precarious position, and a lot of them would have gone unused. Um, likewise, the president, the governor's decision now to shut down the subways. It's kind of a source of consternation in New York reporting that Albany controls the subways in New York City, not the mayor of New York City. Hmm. Um, but it was the governor who decided to shut down the subway system on April 30th for overnight services for the first time in its history to disinfect these cars. It was probably the right move, but it came months too late after we learned that New York City subways were a major disseminator, according to a study conducted by an economist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and that New York City's uh, caseload seeded most of the country. Uh, and this is, again, being blamed by this MTA chief on the CDC and the World Health Organization for failing to prepare us for the scale of this epidemic but it was the governor who failed to respond when we did know that that information was fault flawed and falsified that and most perhaps perhaps the worst of all is the governor's uh behavior when it comes to to nursing homes he instituted an uh, executive order in late march that required nursing homes to admit um seniors who are coming from hospitals even if they suspect them to be COVID cases there have been 5,000 deaths 
in New York's uh, nursing homes. It's an absolute atrocity, decimation of the elderly population in New York. And the, pre- the governor sort of admitted his fault over the weekend when he finally rescinded this order. Nearly six weeks into it, um, you would expect a press coverage where there's kind of a sotto voce effort to impose some um, some circumspection on people who want to lock down early, or release these lockdowns earlier than perhaps public health experts would prefer by saying, you know, you're, we want to put elderly people at risk. It's so selfish. How dare you? They've applied none of the scrutiny to Andrew Cuomo, who did put elderly people at risk, resulting in mass death. Right. Yeah. And, and as I understand it, uh, was it the New York Post um, says that the governor has now ordered an investigation and he's put in charge the attorney general of the state, Tish yes, James. James. Okay, yeah. and and, and uh, who apparently got her job at based on Cuomo's crucial assistance, they say. Uh, and and so the focus of this investigation is going to look at what the nursing homes did wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit like the New York Times calling for the Democratic National Committee to investigate Joe Biden. Right. Um, it, it's a parody of what we assume to be the kind of you know the obvious desire to evade scrutiny on this sort of situation and you know i mean another thing that has been unlooked upon is now we're talking about excess deaths the extent to which people who were scared off by the COVID situation delayed um preventative care uh elective surgeries which sounds like it's cosmetic surgery but elective surgeries like colonoscopy and stuff like that like or, or otherwise you know conditions that are very serious that need to be addressed surgically um and that people are simply avoiding that kind of care uh, Governor Cuomo contributed to that air of fear. He tweeted uh, in late March that, or March 16th, rather, not even that late, that if you're feeling health uh, sick, uh, you need to contact the doctor's office before you go to urgent care or the ER. It keeps you safer. It keeps everybody safer. So basically stay out of the ERs. This is contributing to the very phenomenon now that everybody is saying will balloon New York's death totals by perhaps another 5,000 uh, fatalities. Um, and the governor has evaded all this scrutiny, and that would be understandable, just attributable to media bias. But it's not just that. It's more than that. They're creating this uh, iconographic, hagiographical portrait of this character, which he certainly does not deserve. He, he serves only as a contrast to the president, which suggests that it's just a purely political narrative. But boy, is it an obnoxious one. Yeah. Is it you mentioned this rally around the flag? Uh, response uh, to crises and trauma, and even our uh, North Carolina governor is a Democrat, Roy Cooper, barely beat the incumbent Pat McCrory in 2016. He's got approval numbers somewhere north of 70 percent, and uh, even a majority of Republicans say they support his uh, approach to fighting COVID-19 in North Carolina. I don't know if it translates into Republican votes, but uh, they, everybody seems to be generally supportive. So um, why is it? Uh, why would it be sort of unexpected then to see this this kind of praise for the governor and for obviously, you know, partisans and politicos to kind of latch on and then puff that up even more, amplify that that messaging, just because it does give people some bit of comfort uh, and maybe uh, the, it, it's required in a time of crisis. Well, I mean, sure. And I'll make allowances for that as a psychological uh, human psychological need. Um, the governor, our governor, uh, and not my governor per se, but Andrew Cuomo, has uh, adopted an affect, uh, a sort of a posture 
that is relatively reassuring and in a time of significant trauma, that can be something that people would latch onto. And that's a perfectly human experience. And there should be understandable about that. I have not seen any sexual fantasies about your governor, um, (laughs) which I have seen in mainstream media venues. That's not normal. Wait, have you seen our governor, though? Hang on a second. (laughs) It should be be understood that that's, that's a weird thing to do. And the fact that we're just ignoring it like it's normal um, is a testament to how desperately this political narrative is needed on the part of the president's opponents. Because, again, it serves only to create the antithesis of Trump, the anti-Trump. That's what that's what they want. And they're, they're attributing to this guy superhuman powers when the results of his record suggest something far less than competence. Well, if we are in a post-truth society, then it makes uh, it makes perfect sense, right? Like uh, none of that would matter. He could just he could just you know get out there, beat his chest, yell and scream, and with the New York accent, and and that would be sufficient, right? I, I suppose. I mean, maybe it will be. Maybe it will be. <laughs> maybe sufficient. it will be. Yeah. So, how much of this? And you mentioned it in your piece. And I, it's something that I'm not really sure I have any. I've paid no, virtually no attention, by the way, to any of this. Just I've been focused on other stuff, but. Is this is this actually a, a a a rational thought process with any kind of realistic probability of happening that Biden is not the nominee and that they put Cuomo in there? Like, is, is there an actual campaign afoot uh, up there that would that would lead to that outcome? I mean, ninety nine percent no. Uh, in the absence of abdication by Joe Biden himself, there is no mechanism to do this. And most of the people I've seen speculate about this sort of thing are generally we're not Biden supporters during the primary. Mm. So it's it's people who are on the far left progressive end of the spectrum um, who are disconcerted with Joe Biden's performance and the allegations against him by Tara Reid. And they're raising the prospect of some sort of an escape hatch. But it just doesn't exist. There's no institutional mechanism to make that happen. Um, and it's a little bit reminiscent of 2016 and the, you know, the, the rump anti-Trump remnant by that point, by this point, four years ago, who were fantasizing about some sort of an escape hatch. It just doesn't exist. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's not really worth devoting a whole lot of thought to. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned this also, but I, I think it's important to sort of reemphasize that um, w- and I've been trying to do the same. I'm not a fan of our governor down here, Governor Roy Cooper, but uh, I'm trying to give him as much latitude uh, and benefit of the doubt, making really difficult decisions that we really nobody really knows what they're doing here. Right. Nobody knows what the virus is. We're all learning on the fly. Or as uh, our congressman, uh, Dr. Greg Murphy said, we're building the plane as we're flying it. So I, I try to give some latitude. Um but it seems like there were a lot of really bad decisions up there. And as you said, like they are in stark contrast to the outcomes. And yours seems to me to be more of a media critique than a critique of Cuomo himself. Is that fair? No, I mean, there is I, not to, to totally dis- discount your characterization of the piece. I think that's fair to an extent. But it is also a criticism of the governor's performance. True. It's most certainly a criticism <laughs> of his of the uh, the lackadaisical uh, approach that he took to the subway system, mm-hmm. um, his uh, convenient effort to stack uh, nursing homes with patients who would otherwise overwhelm the hospital system, understandable, nevertheless, responsible for mass death, and um, the extent to which uh, he was responsible for uh the um 
I'm sorry, I'm trying to look it up in this piece because I forgot what it was. Oh, uh, the the excess death, the results yeah. of people avoiding care. I mean, this is the sort of thing we only know in retrospect. Fine, you can apply that. You can be gracious about it and say, look, there's a lot we didn't know and we were improvising along the way and you should be forgiving of that. I'm willing to be forgiving of that. Nevertheless, you have to ask for forgiveness. You have to acknowledge the fact that you erred. And the press has been engaged and his supporters and Democrats have been engaged in this campaign to create some sort of a cult of personality around the guy. Um, It's disproportionate with his performance and suggests they're afraid of a truly dispassionate, scrutinizing retrospective on the New York governor's performance during this pandemic. And we cannot be afraid of the hard questions around this thing. We all made mistakes. Everybody made mistakes in pursuit of truly noble and important outcomes in a, in, a, in a situation in which everyone was improvising. It's forgivable, but you have to be willing to look backwards critically. And you haven't seen any of that on the part of the press or the or uh, most mainstream Democrats who acknowledge that this situation even exists. You know, I saw Jonathan Shake come after me the other day over this piece and said, you know, it's just like everybody else who's getting a rally around the flag effect. It's not. It's completely different, and it's more than a little gross, and it needs to be and it needs to be examined critically, because it has it has no bearing on reality and suggests some sort of a psychological or political campaign is at work here, mm. and that's uh, that's a little a little discomforting to me at least. Noah Rothman, the associate associate editor rather of uh, Commentary Magazine, CommentaryMagazine.com. You can follow him at Noah C. Rothman on Twitter, at Commentary uh, on Twitter as well. He's also the author of the book Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. I appreciate your time, sir. Thanks so much. Great to talk with you again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So stay-at-home orders have expired in 16 states. Uh, through today, or through, I should say, yesterday, May 12th. So seven more states that have stay-at-home orders, or the SHEOs, uh, they will expire on Friday, May 15th. North Carolina is not one of these states. Is not, okay? The states, according to Ballotpedia, and thank you, Juanita, for sending this link to me. I appreciate it. This was very helpful. They've got a really uh, a good sort of dashboard of all of the states and when they're reopening and everything. Um, And so states that have, uh, as I said, there are stay-at-home orders that have expired so far in 16 states. There are going to be seven more that expire on Friday. And of those seven, five have Democrat governors and two have Republican governors. So on Friday, you got Delaware, Louisiana, Nevada, New Mexico, and New York. All five of those states, Democrat governors, their shios expire. Republican governors in Arizona and Vermont, their shios expire uh, on Friday. See, doesn't the term shio, it just sounds right. See, and I can't say the race day because that's only applicable here in North Carolina, although I do like it. Um, I, I'm a sucker for the ones that rhyme like that. Anyway, after Friday, that means 20 states are still going to have orders in place. 15 of them have Democrat governors and five have Republican governors. So you've got uh, three quarters of all the states after after Friday, three quarters of the remaining states without uh, their shios lifted in some way are run by Democrats. Okay, Uh, the stay at home orders do vary from state to state. They contain at least two common elements requiring residents to stay home except for essential trips or outdoor exercise and closing or curtailing the activities of what the state deems to be, quote, non-essential businesses. And uh, governors in 43 states issued these statewide stay-at-home orders. Axios.com, interesting, 
Um, High-risk states are seeing fewer new cases. The first stages of reopening have not produced a surge in coronavirus cases in most states, at least not yet, they say. The reopening process is still in its early stages, so a second wave of infections still remains distinctly possible. Um, they, they chart this all out and they say that uh, obviously the skeptics are most worried about states like Florida and Georgia, but they have not seen, we have not seen the rise in total cases that some experts had feared. Now, cases are still increasing in other parts of the country. North Carolina has a 30% increase in the seven-day average of new cases, but that might be due in part to some of the increase in testing. This show is made possible by Schaefer Smith, scrambling to set up or improve your website. It can be overwhelming. It was for me. Uh, So let my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design help you out with logos, graphics, photos, and online store. He does search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security for professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs. Schaefer Smith. Make your site look professional, user-friendly, not just for your customers, but also for you. So you can get in there and do what you need to do with your website, and you can adapt more quickly. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. Also, the show is made possible by Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. If you are thinking of buying or selling your home, call the only agent that I would call if I were That's Rowena Patton, 333-4483. That's 333-4483. She understands the COVID-19 times here have impacted everybody in different ways, and you may need to sell your home. Uh, But maybe you're thinking you can't even hold an open house right now. Good news, Rowena has offered walking tour videos of her homes since 2007 on every listing, just like the real thing. That means buyers can tour your home without having to leave their home. Start out with a video consult with Rowena at 333-4483 and mountainhomehunt.com and then start packing. And the show is made possible by Old Grouch's Military Surplus. If you're looking to be prepared for disasters and pandemics and such, do you need some advice? If you're looking for real military surplus for more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It's an old school traditional store with a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He'll hook you up. You can also text him at 565-2497. That's 565-2497. You can make an order, ask about an item, get some advice. By the way, EMS, law enforcement professionals, if you're looking for uh, uniforms, uh, send them a text. Make an appointment at Old Grouch's Military Surplus across the street from the anti-aircraft gun on Main Street, downtown Clyde, and at oldgrouch.com. So North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper is now getting a lot of pressure from various sectors of the economy and its citizenry, like the uh, business community. He's getting it from uh, parents who have kids that are wondering, like, what's happening with the schools. He's getting it from uh, Republicans, obviously, because he's a Democrat, but also the Sheriff's Association, Police Chiefs Association, church groups. So um There was a letter that went to the governor from the North Carolina Sheriff's Association, and there was another one that followed up after that from the chiefs of police in North Carolina. This came from the executive committee of the Sheriff's Association. And I'm going to go through some of the bullet points here because they are taking issue with the governor's shio as it relates to houses of worship. Okay. Um, By the way, I'm cutting out all of the whereases in this resolution. It's a letter, but it's a resolution. So I'm just cutting out all the whereases. You're welcome. It also prohibits, his shio does, 
mass gatherings of more than 10 persons at the same time in a single place, but it specifies that mass gatherings do not include gatherings for worship. Okay, it then requires that gatherings for worship of more than 10 people are only allowed if they take place outdoors, unless impossible. That caused some confusion. (laughs) What makes something to be impossible, right? The sheriffs of North Carolina, they say, believe that the restrictions and recommended guidelines that apply to persons who gather to worship should be no more stringent than those that apply to businesses that are allowed to remain open. The North Carolina Sheriff's Association respectfully requests that Governor Roy A. Cooper amend his executive order, the SHEO, to provide that indoor worship services are not prohibited by the SHEO. They adhere to similar requirements that allow for the operation of retail businesses. So what is the rub here is, right, the too long didn't read version here is that all these sheriffs on the executive committee, um, they're saying apply a consistent standard. Okay, so. Governor Cooper's Secretary of Health and Human Services, Dr. Mandy Cohen, was asked about this at the Monday press briefing, and here is what she had to say. We know a group of state senators is asking specifically about wording in that order that says groups of more than 10 people are allowed to gather outdoors unless it's impossible. So is there any circumstance where a group larger than 10 could worship indoors because it's impossible to meet outdoors. Thanks. Hi, Andrea. Thanks for that question. And I, I heard that for the that concern for the first time earlier today. And we are having a team go back to see if there's any additional clarification that we can give. But let me take a step back of like, where did how did we get here in the first place in terms of the phases and what we're trying to do with protecting uh, our communities and slowing the spread of the virus? What we've we've tried to do um, as we think about the first phase of activities, we wanted to move forward with lower risk activities. And I was explaining to a group today, essentially the things that are lower risk happen outside, higher risk inside. Lower risk things are, are things where you can be walking around, Higher risk are when you're sitting or you're sedentary for or, or, or in, in one place for a long time. So the highest risk things are when you are indoors and sitting, and the lower risk things are when you're outdoors and walking. So you can see why in the first phase of things, we wanted to to move forward with activities that allowed you to do the lower risk things, things that are outdoors and walking, like going to a, going to a park. I did that this weekend with my family or to go to somewhere, if you have to go indoors, where you're actually walking around. So somewhere like a retail establishment, um, or a store, a clothing store, or what have you. So those are the activities. So we wanted to focus on those lower risk activities. The higher risk activities are the ones, like I said, indoors and, and, and sitting, sitting down. And as you can imagine, worship services fall into that higher risk category. doesn't mean that we can't ever get there. It just means that if we want to slowly phase in in terms of risk, that one is one we wanted to put off until a, 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 a later time. When we do move indoors, we always want folks to be doing the three W's for sure. Because when you go indoors, a couple of things are happening. One, the airflow is not as good. Second, you are you are touching more surfaces by nature. You're going indoors, you're touching doorknobs, you're having shared um, facilities and bathrooms and other things. You're touching the books, the pews, etc. 
And then the the third part is that you tend to be more close together because it's an indoor space rather than outdoor. We have more, potentially more space to move around, right? So those are all the factors that we want to think about. So as people think about needing to do indoor activities that are at higher risk, we want them to think about those things, right? Where Airflow. So we want to be, have folks really thinking about um, uh, about airflow as, as they think about indoor activities for larger groups of people. They want to think about those sh- like those surfaces that people touch a lot, right? So that goes to the deep cleaning, and then we want to be focused on on spacing. Spacing is going to be really critical, which means you're not going to be able to fill capacity in any of these places. So I go through all that explanation because I keep hearing that not just in worship but in in other uh, circumstances. So I wanted to go through so that we do have a, a, a way of trying to address this, that we're trying to help folks do the things that will keep us all um, protected, will keep the viral spread low. As far as the worship services, they fall into a particular category with special legal status. Um, we don't want to interrupt anyone's ability to worship, to pray, um, but we want to keep folks safe. That's why we're trying to find this middle ground. We're hoping as many, many people can heed our advice and say, look, can you have your church services outdoors? But even when you're outdoors, please stay six feet apart. Please wear face coverings. Please wash your hands. But there are extenuating circumstances as in, in everything in life. If you need to come indoors, we want you to stay below 10, 10 people. Can you use online streaming can, to, to do worship services? Can you stagger? Can you go into multiple rooms so that folks aren't in the same physical place, again, so that there's different air movement, different surfaces that people are touching? Those are the kinds of things that we're trying to ask people to do. Again, to be as protective as we possibly can to, and to, to keep viral spread as low as we possibly can. I hear you, Andrea, in this question, we heard it from a number of stakeholders about this word. What does it mean if it's impossible to go inside? What does that mean? So we're taking that back to our lawyers. I think this is more of a legal definition of what can we do to give folks some more clarity around that piece. So we hear that feedback, and we'll try to give more clarity. But I'm hoping I this is a very long answer, sorry. I hope this will just give you some thinking about how folks can protect each other um, and the faith communities will go forward. I know the faith communities done an incredible job of, of wanting to keep their congregations safe and I'm so appreciative of their partnership as we work through these unprecedented and, uh, and times where there really is no blueprint. But we do have science to guide us. We're going to try to rely on that as, as, as much as possible and use the data to guide us um, to keep folks protected. And, and we'll keep, keep doing that as we move through this. They keep saying science, data, uh, and, uh, the, the, and facts. These are the things that are going to guide all of their decisions. Yet you look at these other states. I went through them earlier. Uh, they're opening back up. Is their science giving them some different results? Is their data giving them different results? Are there facts on the ground in South Carolina and Georgia and Florida and Colorado and every other state that's opened back up to some degree? Are, are the facts on the ground different? Is the science different? Is the data different? I do agree with her that there is no blueprint. I'm not so sure she when she says that they're trying to find middle ground here, I'm not so sure that's the case because there is some better middle ground. And maybe if you listen to the people who are offering you different suggestions, because they're offering the suggestions on how to find middle ground. I also want to point out that despite the fact that she keeps saying we're asking people to do these things, they're not asking 
these houses of worship to do these things, right? They're telling the houses of worship. This is an executive order. It's not an executive ask, right? This is not a Shia. It's a Shio. So you're telling these houses of worship, these are the rules. And if you violate these rules, there are consequences, right? Now, she says they want to uh, slowly phase in the reopening of various sectors, and it's all going to be based on risk, which I agree, by the way, that this should all be based on risk assessment. What is the risk of catching it? And what is the risk of dying it based on all of the different demographic information that we have so far compiled? Okay, what is that risk assessment? In North Carolina, we don't know because the DHHS, Dr. Cohen's organization, they won't do this data for us. Maybe they will at some point. I don't know. Maybe it's beyond the scope of what they do. But if you want us to continue to consent to be governed under these types of orders, and I would submit to you that the patience is wearing pretty thin so far, um, if you want our consent, you're going to have to give us better data on the risk assessment. So yes, I agree. You should be guided based on the data. So let's see it. What are the chances that I, a 45, 46-year-old male, uh, if I catch it with whatever you know my comorbidities are, uh, if I catch it, what are the odds that I'm going to die from it? What are the odds that I'm going to catch it? What is the overall odds that I get it and die from it, right? Those are key pieces of data that we should know if we're going to be basing all of this on risk assessment. It can't just be based on numbers of total people infected, right? Because it affects people different ways. So you could be asymptomatic and never suffer any real uh, harm, not even know you had it. So it can't just be about people who test positive for it. Um, so they, so what she explained here on Monday is laying out their thought process that says lower risk equals outdoors and walking around, higher risk equals indoors and sitting down. Yet, you know as well as I do that you could set up a worship service that keeps people spread apart in their family units, right? Keep, you know, one family or two families per pew, depending on how long the pews are, and you stagger the services, you do, you know, one hour service followed by a half hour clean and then another one hour service and you rope off areas, you keep people and you rotate them around. Like there are all different ways that churches could make this work, but they're not even given the chance to do so. They're not being afforded that opportunity. Then there's this question of impossible. And she makes this uh, uh, point at the very end that this is something that they're going to have to have their lawyers <laughs> check into because when they wrote the 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 shio they said unless it's impossible and you heard the question there from Andrea Blandford from ABC 11 uh that there was a letter that was sent from some uh North Carolina senators and I have the letter it's from uh senator uh well this one is from oh, there were 18 actually North Carolina senators wrote governor Roy Cooper seeking clarity on his order on the worship services they say, is a worship service impossible in the event of severe weather, light rain, strong wind? What about heat or cold? Is it impossible if a particular church lacks access to a suitable outdoor space? Like, what if your parking lot isn't big enough, right? Um, is it impossible to conduct a worship service outside if the audio, visual, or other equipment necessary to conduct the service cannot be moved outside or is otherwise at risk of damage if it gets moved outside? Like, you're asking these churches to now put on outdoor festivals and rock concerts, basically. Um, do you think that's more difficult for them to do than it would be to, 
honor your social distancing, three W's and everything, to do all of that in their inside their huge open space that they conduct their services? They say, on behalf of our concerned constituents, we request immediate clarification of what conditions make it impossible. Okay? That was the letter. (laughs) All right. Here is... (laughs) Here is the response now from the... Let me see. I believe this is from the... Well, it's from the governor's office, but this came from Lee Lilly. And if that name doesn't ring a bell to you, let me catch you up. Lee Lilly, the director of legislative affairs for Governor Cooper, he was the guy who was in Congressman Butterfield's office. Uh, He was staffer there, legislative liaison or something, Um, uh, in Democratic Representative Butterfield's office in D.C., okay? Then he went to be a lobbyist for McGuire Woods. Then um, he was the lobbyist uh, for the energy company Dominion Energy, Uh, which Dominion was building the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. And then he went from Dominion right to the governor's staff, right after the governor shook down, I mean, negotiated the big fat $58 million slush, I mean, grant program that the governor would control, that the state legislature stepped in and said, you can't do that because constitutionally we control the money, not you. You don't get to create funds and then distribute it to your um, to your donors. Right? That's Lee Lilly. That's the guy. He's now legislative affairs director <clears throat> for Governor Cooper. So he goes through this guy. He offers up the guidance for religious services and mass gathering restrictions. And by the way, the reason why this is all new information is because this is part of the phase one of the Shio. Okay, this is the phase one reopening Shio. Um, this is not the phase zero that we were in. All right, so here's what he says In situations where it is not possible to conduct worship services outdoors, or through other accommodations. Remember, this is him explaining what it means when you say impossible, okay? What does it mean when you say impossible? Here's his uh, here's his answer to this question. In situations where it is not possible to conduct worship services outdoors or through other accommodations, such as through, for example, a series of indoor services of 10 or fewer attendees or through online services, then the 10-person attendance limit on indoor worship services does not apply, okay? So he's, so he's saying, if, you, if it's, when you, when you asked me, what does it mean when, when you say it's impossible, my answer is, it's impossible when it's not possible. That was the answer. He said, and then he offers this, for example, there may be situations in which particular religious beliefs dictate that some or all of a religious service must be held indoors and that more than 10 persons must be in attendance. While indoors, participants should continue to adhere to the recommendations to promote social distancing and reduce transmission. So the first thing I thought was, wow, I did not know that there was some sort of religious service that requires it be indoors with more than 10 people. And apparently there is. I saw some Jewish folks talking about there's uh, some type of service or ritual that they do that meets that those requirements like you have to be inside and there's got to be a certain number of people there but so that's the example he gives he doesn't he doesn't answer and by the way this is on purpose they're not answering because they don't want to get sued they're not answering because it leaves this all ambiguous and what they're hoping is that the church leaders 
because of the ambiguity, will will err on the side of not getting arrested, right? They will err on the side of uh, following the Shio and not having indoor services of more than 10 people, right? They're not going to, uh, they're, they're just going to go to the, the most restrictive interpretation. And that's, that's why they're not answering this question. Okay. So that was then the, uh, that was the response from the governor's office. As you might imagine, this did not answer all the questions. <laughs> so here is now, this is from Tuesday's news conference, daily briefing. Uh, the AP's Gary Robertson asked a question about indoor worship restrictions, and here it goes. Governor, I want to ask you about uh, church services and your phase one order. I know that you had sent, that Lee Lilly had sent to some legislators some information about uh, clarifying what your order means, and I think there's still a lot of frustration among um, lawmakers, but also church leaders, about being unable to hold uh, indoor services um more frequently, or it not being just a, a rare exception. And I just wanted to get your sense of um, why you believe this is the right path to go to to basically prohibit indoor services, you know, given that there are some exceptions. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Gary. I miss in-person church services very much myself. This Sunday, I listened to my church service uh, online and it's something that we've been having to do over the last few weeks in order to protect each other in order to care about your neighbor because we know that inside it is much more likely that you're going to transmit this virus particularly when you're sitting or standing in one place for a long period of time and this is across the board and some people are trying to compare this with retail, there's a big difference. With retail, people are moving around, and you don't have as much a chance to spread the virus. It's significantly greater chance when people are sitting or standing indoors and close together. We are aware of First Amendment rights and want to protect those, and it is one of the reasons why uh, permission has been given for outside services of more than 10 people if there is appropriate social distancing. What we're hoping is that ministers and church leaders will put the health of their congregations at the head of their thinking here in consideration of each other, realizing that it is still dangerous to hold indoor services when people, more than 10 people are there and those people are closer together. And we want to make sure that, that the people across this state are protected. Do you catch what he's laying down there for you? <laughs> he's telling church leaders that they need to care about their flock. They need to care about their congregation. And if you try to hold these indoor services, that obviously means you want them to die. He's making this argument, although it's not even a lives versus economy. I guess this is a lives versus God argument. I'm not sure. This is this is one of the components here of this entire uh, debate that's been raging open, reopen and risk assessment and everything. Have you noticed that the people who tend not to believe in an afterlife really want the, uh, the society to stay shut down? They seem to be far more scared than the folks who believe in an afterlife. And I think that's an important 
uh, distinction. The people who believe that that their reward is later in heaven, they're not as afraid to die. Right. So all of you that are out there yelling at the Christians, telling them, you know, how dare you want to go to church? Uh, You're going to get everybody killed. Christians have been getting killed for their religion for a very, very long time. <laughs> so, right? like, uh, oh, you're going to send them down and uh, ha- have to worship in, in secret? Yeah, Christians used to do that, too. Again, like, what is old is new again. So uh, th- I have noticed this distinction, okay? I have also noticed that it seems like a lot of the, the same arguments about uh, global warm, sorry, climate change, the climate change argument has basically been compressed down uh, into this like one year window and it's COVID-19. All of the same arguments seem to be the same and all of the same science is settled or we're following science and facts and data and your deniers and this and that. It's all the same argument. It's just instead of a 10 year horizon for the complete annihilation of the human race, it's a year, you know, it's six months, right? So everything is like just super compressed <laughs> into this shorter time frame. Um, he says he wants these ministers to put uh, the health of their congregation at the head of their thinking. The arrogance required, right, to make that statement. He's telling these preachers, these ministers, that they're not caring about the health of their flock. That's what he's saying to them. And that you simply wanting to have service in your church hall and have everybody come in, you just want that because why? Well, maybe it's because of the the uh, the offerings, the donations. Is that it? Are you worried? Is that the implication here that these preachers just want to reopen their churches because uh, they're losing money? They're not getting the uh, the donations after the service and such. Is that the is that the unspoken allegation going on here that they're that they're being motivated by something other than the health, the spiritual health of their congregation? See, this is the problem when you only rely on a certain group of people, which we don't even know who they all are, but when you're relying on one certain group of people that is telling you, oh, well, if you're at a church service, then you're going to be indoors and close together. And that's just automatically assumed, and it's accepted by these reporters in the press corps. They just took that down. Stenographers for Ray Cooper, and they're like, oh, okay, well, they're indoor and close together. Why do you assume that they have to be close together? Why would you assume that just being indoors means all of a sudden they're going to cram you in like sardines? Why would you assume that? Have you ever been inside of a church? A lot of them are very, very big. (laughs) A lot of them aren't even full most of the time for the services, except for like Easter and Christmas. Yes. He asks them to... uh, to pay, to say, he said to pay consideration for each other's health. Like, think of your neighbor, love thy neighbor. This is the, this is what he's trying to say. You got, again, I'm astounded at what this guy gets away with saying because he's a Democrat. And there's also his, his, uh, his accent, this really thick, syrupy accent, and uh, just the way it, his, his facial expressions. Like, he comes across as if he's just this really nice, genteel guy. This dude is a political, condescending animal, okay? He is. This governor is. This guy, I w- and I went off on this on Twitter yesterday. I finally gave up. I've been biting my tongue long enough on this, and uh, if I have time, I'll get to... Uh, I'll get to this as well, because the very last question of his press conference, it just sent me off. All right. So then here is Secretary of Health and Human Services, Mandy Cohen. Uh, she follows up on uh, the governor's comments and says that the limitations are, de- are designed 
to get us all trained, basically, here. We know that this is challenging, but we tried in phase one to focus on activities that were uh, lower risk of spreading the virus. And if we look at the things that are the lowest risk, it are things that are outdoors and walking around. The things that are the highest risk are things that are indoors and sitting down. And the reasons are, are several. One, when you're indoors, you don't have the same air circulation. You have more surfaces that you touch, doorknobs, uh, pews, etc. cetera. Uh, and also when you're, when you're sitting down, it is that contact, it is more than 10 minutes within six feet, that is when the virus is most transmitted. So if you think about that as the highest risk and the lowest risk being outside and walking around, we're trying to start as we do this reopening with, with the activities that are the lower risk. Let's get used to our three W's as we do those lower risk activities. Um, and then we'll step through this once we are getting used to the wearing, washing, waiting uh, parts of the three W's, then we'll do the higher risk activities. But I will say, I, I hope everyone thinks about their own personal risk and risk to their family. We know that folks who are over 65 and have chronic diseases are more at risk for, for getting severe illness from COVID-19. So even as we ease up restrictions, I would encourage folks to think about their own personal risk uh, here and their family's risk. Maybe it's not you who are over 65, but someone in your household. Um, so think about that and, and making your own judgments, uh, even as we go and, and ease restrictions as we move through this. But we want to make sure that, that folks are as safe as possible. We know this virus will be with us, uh, again, until we have a vaccine. So this is a matter of how do we get used to living with this virus being amongst us? Ah, okay, amongst is not a word. But um, so there you go. So this is about training us to adopt the three W's over the next two weeks. And then then we'll allow houses of worship to do their thing, kind of. And by the way, she throws in the think about your personal risk and your family risk, 65 years and older and that sort of thing, which I agree. Again, I do agree. Absolutely. That's why I've been saying we need to know what the risks are based on age, based on comorbidity, and whether you live in a congregate care facility. We need that data from DHHS. That's a wrap for this episode. Hey, remember, please subscribe to the podcast, give it a thumbs up in the reviews, and consider becoming a patron of the program. You get cool stuff and exclusive content. Links are at thepetecalendarshow.com and in the description of the podcast. Thanks so much for your support. Talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. 